Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Right, so this week, we're doing a little food-themed special, aren't we, Lorraine? I can't let this go. I think we have to tell the listeners about your funny little email that came to me. A little bit of a blooper, wasn't it? I think it's my best ever. (laughs) I'm the queen of the typos. I don't know whether I'm dyslexic or just rush everything, but you do get loads of uh, emails from me with loads of typos in, don't you, Trish? Oh, yes, but this was the best. This is a good one. Talking about batch cooking, which we are going to be talking about, and... It was a sort of Mrs. Slocum, Gen X, ooh moment where only you and I probably would have got it. And I said, I can't help you with that, Trish, because I'm in the middle of batch cocking. <laughs> Bit of batch cocking. And then we wondered, didn't we, on the WhatsApp, what that might mean? <laughs> I know. I mean, what does that conjure? What does that bring to mind? We'd love to hear, actually. Well, I just think it might get us cancelled, Trish. It might get us cancelled, but I, what's, you know, what's coming to my mind is shuttlecock. That's another good word. Didn't come to my mind. From my badminton days. (laughs) Just all the jokes, all the ridiculous Benny Hill jokes came to my mind, which is sad, really. Welcome to Postcards from Midlife. I'm Lorraine Candy. And I'm Trish Halpin. If you're living in a hormonal hothouse, feeling a bit overwhelmed and in need of some positive, uplifting and comforting guidance on how to lead a more magnificent midlife, then this is the show for you. We chat to celebrities and experts on all things midlife, from menopause and perimenopause to parenting teens, via fashion, beauty, wellness, nutrition, fitness careers, relationships, caring for elderly relatives and your finances. Yes, we are experts and famous guests all the questions you need answered to have a happier, healthier and more harmonious second act. Now my little friend on Zoom, let me show you my lovely view today. Where am I, Trisha Kins? Where am I? Well, I think I know very well that moody ocean. Your favourite place, isn't it? It's one I'm going to be visiting myself very soon. You're by the seaside. I am, Trish. I am WFC. My favourite thing, work from Cornwall. Oh, <laughs> like that. So I am in Polseth uh, today recording. It's half term. Polseth is going to be the scene of our first ever midlife retreat. And that's happening very soon in March. And also it's our first ever podcast recording on location, Trish, as well. In our, is it nearly five years of us doing that? Yes, with a special guest. Yes, exactly. With a special guest, yes. I'm here for a uh, half time with the family at the moment, but I've just been up to San Moritz Hotel, the Wild Spa, which is part of our retreat. And our retreat takes place on Friday, March the 15th to Sunday, March the 17th. I'm very, very excited about the whole thing, Trish. I've got Morag's bonnet ready. You know, my swim hat that you make fun of. Do you think everybody knows about Morag's 
swim bonnet now. It's the one with the chin strap. I mean, I just talk about it all the time. It's just endless amusement for me. It's a wet poly, whatever they call them, poly thingy, wet suity type uh, bonnet that goes over my ears and under my chin. But I didn't wear it to the wild spa, which was lovely. I had to get in. Uh, so I went up to San Moritz yesterday into the sauna, made my husband come with me. He's not a fan of any of these things, but he really enjoyed it. In the sauna, in the little cold tub, in there, two degrees it was. In the hot tub, lovely. Oh, I love that. Can't wait. Back in the sauna. Yes. In the swimming pool, lovely. Eight or nine degrees in the pool. We were there for two hours. You get all of that, a little glass of Prosecco, and you get a little winter salad lunch to round it all off. I was glowing by the time I went home, but I didn't get a chance to put the bonnet on. Um, I'm saving that for you. Can I borrow it when we yes. do our uh, San Moritz? <laughs> but obviously everybody gets all of that that you've just talked about and so much more across this fabulous two days. While you're in Cornwall, I have been intrigued to know, because you the last time you were there... There was a Margot-like cat, wasn't there, that um, was really bothering you, really upsetting you. Is he, she still about? What is that breed of cat you've got? What is it? She's a Burman, but she could be mistaken for a ragdoll. Cat enthusiasts will know what I'm talking about. Well, anyone who listened knows that last time I came down, I was just quietly doing the washing up and this Burman peered in front of me on the windowsill and I thought, oh my God, I'm 250 miles away. How has Margot found me? I think it is Margot. I don't think it's a real cat. I think she travels on the astral plane. Oh, spirit of Margot, yes. Comes down and haunts me. Anyway, enough of Queen Margot, as I call her. What else, boss, is happening on the retreat? All that wild sparring, as you, you mentioned. But it's all about resting, rejuvenating and re-energising with us, with both of us. Um, we've got local chef Emily Scott coming to talk about mindful cooking. We have the amazing breathwork coach and somatic movement teacher Nahid de Belgioni uh, teaching us how to calm our nervous systems. And of course, best-selling author Kathy Rensenbrink, who's going to be discussing her book, How to Feel Better, in a live recording of the podcast. And it's so easy to book, Lorraine, isn't it? What do they have to do? You go onto the San Moritz Cornwall website, San Moritz Hotel Cornwall in Polseth. And uh, if you type in postcards from midlife San Moritz Cornwall, it will come up with all of the itinerary of everything we're doing and a link to book. So it's quite a small retreat. So get get on with it because <laughs> we don't want to disappoint people. So uh, do that now. I'm really looking forward to it, Trish, because we're also doing something called a friendship walk along the cliffs, aren't we? I'm going to walk you all to Dama Bay, where I do a little bit of swimming, but also where I got married and spent all my childhood holidays. I think this is going to be a really nice little break for women because you'll be meeting new friends as well, won't you? It won't just be about the retreat. It's about meeting new friends, a little bit of networking and just learning how to settle your mind, get rested and go back into your um, life. We're also going to be hosting our workshop too, aren't we? Yes, we are. And um, just going to say, I might have a walking equivalent of Morag's bonnet because I've got uh, some new walking gaiters. Do you know what they are? Sounds like dragging a crocodile behind you. <laughs> Does it, doesn't it? They're sort of these things that you wrap around the bottom of your legs when you go walking and they clip under your shoes to prevent uh, everything getting covered in mud and destroyed. You know, like last week's kettle, small kettle chat. This is another one on the slippery slope, isn't it? The walking gaiters. You haven't got a stick to walk with because I won't walk with anyone who walks with a stick. I batter you with it. No, I'm not doing the poles. No, no, I don't do poles. I'm all about walk active with our lovely friend Joanna Hall. But 
Yes, we're going to be sharing our knowledge, aren't we? After interviewing, I think, more than 200 people on our podcast. It's a lot because we're all about helping women live their best midlife, something we are doing on today's show too, because our guest is the former barrister turned restauranter Nisha Katona, and uh, she'll be chatting about her career reinvention, all happened in her 40s, um, as well as giving us some great foodie tips. Uh, it is a food fest, as we've mentioned on today's show, because in the How to Win at Midlife section, we'll be tackling a bit of batch cooking, not batch cooking. It's a really useful way of freeing up time in midlife for all the other things we want to do or have to do. You've been trying it for the first time. I mean, obviously, you've got the, the spelling wrong in the email. Batch cooking for the first time. And by God, Trish, I am the world's least domesticated woman. I'm like Rhea from Butterflies. But it is something I wanted to talk about because I do think it's super useful. Not everyone's doing it. I thought was the only person not doing it. Lots of my friends are not doing it either. That'd be very useful. Before we get Nisha on, though, I thought I would turn the tables. Because you're always quizzing me, aren't you? Making me look like a geography nitwit. I'm going to do a foodie quiz for you, a chef quiz. Oh, no. It's also a nostalgia noodle as well, so everyone listening can take part. Should they not have better things to do? I mean, for God's sake, listening to us waffle on doing foodie quizzes. You ready? I've got my finger on the buzzer. You don't get a badge. I'm quite tense. I'm quite, I want a badge and a prize. You are a bit tense. Look, look at you. All right, first question, you should be, I'm easing you in, not like your geography questions, I'm easing you in gently. Which famous TV chef's name rhymes with haddock? Ah, Fanny Craddock. That was an easy one. I always think of Blamange when I think of Fanny Craddock. Don't know why, but there you go. I can't even go there with that. I'm not going to make any jokes about Blamange. Now, how many extra eggs a day were sold after Delia Smith's How to Cook telly show came out showing us how to boil an egg? You're not going to get this. It's extraordinary. I'm going to say 1 million extra eggs. 1.3 million extra eggs were sold the week it came out. Oh, I wasn't far off. That's extraordinary, isn't it? These poor chickens. They had to kind of up the production cycle. This one brings back to life one of my favourite uh, telly chefs. Which travelling telly chef, who was married four times and divorced four times, said, food is life, life is food. If you don't like my approach, you're welcome to go down McDonald's, which is not something you should ever say in the kitchen when you've got teenagers, because they'll just say, I'm going down oh, McDonald's. Travelling, but this is sort of 70s, 80s travelling. Yeah. Did he like a glass of wine? He did, he did, he did. Is it Keith Floyd? Yes. Yay! Two and a half right now. I'm giving myself half a point for number two for the eggs. Last one. Throwing in a bit of French for you, because I know uh, you're still doing your French course. It'll take you 27 years to learn French, isn't it? Who opened a restaurant called Menage à Trois? I was going to make a batch cocking joke then, but I think no. probably inappropriate. No. Mm. In 1981, and only served starters and a pudding. Oh, I have absolutely no idea. Someone quite contrary. So 1981, it's too late for the galloping gourmet. Is it? Oh, gosh. You see, I'd say somebody like um, Marco Pierre White, but I feel like 1981's too early. I'm going to say ready, steady cook as a clue for you. Oh, I don't watch that. Don't watch it. No, I'm, I'm giving up. I don't know. Anthony Worrell Thompson. Do you remember Wazza? Little Anthony. Yes. Did he have a beard? He had a little beard, didn't he? Little beard as well. Yeah, that's don't know how relevant that is. Right. What was my score? I need a score. I need a score. Oh, I didn't write your score down. I'm giving myself three and a half out of four. No, two and a half. Two seventy percent or something. Eighty percent. Anyway, I hope uh, all the listeners enjoyed that little interlude. So back to the useful stuff. And before we get to our interview, 
and uh, how to win at midlife, which comes after the interview, I thought I'd just drop in a little bit of guidance for our wonderful Facebook community because I'm noticing quite a few niggles popping up um, over the last two weeks. Maybe it's a new year thing on women experiencing issues with their partners, their male partners, husbands, usually on our private Facebook group, who are really struggling with their relationship at this stage of life. And I thought I'm just going to drop in two books, people, because these are useful books. So Joanna Harrison's book, The Five Arguments All Couples Need to Have and Why the Washing Up Matters, is really, really good. And Janet Reebstein's Good Relations, Cracking the Code of How to Get On Better, is really good. And we actually interviewed uh, Janet on the show last season, I think, or the season before. So worth listening to that. It's all about uh, marital relationships. And in the archives, we do have the Divorce Hive interview with Amanda, who runs that, which is full of really practical things, because I do notice a lot of women are asking very practical questions about their divorces uh, around money and things like that. Yeah, it seems like it is a tough time. I think at this life stage, isn't it, when your relationship, maybe kids are kind of moving on and you're having that sort of time where you're reevaluating what you want from the next phase. And they get a little bit old and grumpy, some of them set in their ways, their partners. But I think what's amazing is the incredible support and community on the group and the advice and the, the positivity, which I know that women who are struggling are, uh, you know, really appreciating. And also quite a lot of mums of teens, quite a lot of few, uh, few uni questions coming up now that mock A-level results in and A-levels are looming and finding a university. So don't forget about, uh, there's a really good Facebook group called What I Wish I Knew About Universities. So there's lots of advice for you on there if that is an issue for you right now. Well, I hope that was helpful, team. I think we should finish before we do the interview on a very brilliant foodie brain fog moment from the group. Um, I always like to share this because none of us can remember anything, can we, Trish? Even if we're on HRT, we're just so busy, we forget stuff. This is from Lynn, who posted a really lovely picture of her newly made apple crumble that she just got out of the oven. And she said, can anyone notice anything unusual about her crumble? Me neither, she said, until I realised I'd use couscous instead of brown sugar. I mean, it looks fine. It looked absolutely delicious. I mean, God knows what it tasted like, but uh, we all do it, don't we? I made recently made a carrot soup with some purple carrots that I'd got in my veg box. I thought, oh, it'll be fine. It'll taste the same. They're just purple. Oh, my God. It was sort of a grey purple mush and it did taste the same. But looking at it, I just couldn't couldn't cope. Is it like the Bridget Jones blue soup? I think it is exactly that. Maybe she, I can't remember what she made that with. But anyway, and you know I like purple because you know I like my beetroot. But enough. Let's meet Nisha, who can help us all become better cooks. In the words of our favourite girl band, today's special guest is going to be spicing up your life with her remarkable life story and delicious cooking tips. She is restauranteur Nisha Katona, founder of the Mowgli chain of Indian restaurants, which Lorraine and I can both vouch for as one of our favourites. Born in Ormskirk, outside Liverpool, where she still lives, 51-year-old Nisha had a highly successful career as a barrister before giving it all up to follow her passion bringing the food her mother and grandmother brought her up on to the nation. She now has more than 20 restaurants across the UK and is a regular chef on ITV's This Morning, as well as a judge on the BBC's Master Chef and Great British Menu. She is the author of five cookbooks, including her latest, Bold, 
which blends unexpected flavours and ingredients from her own cooking repertoire, along with other cultures, such as that of her husband, the Hungarian classical guitarist Sultan Katona, with whom she has two daughters. Of her second career success in midlife, she says, Even when I was awarded an MBE, it took time to process that if the Queen thought that this pushy northern woman selling kebabs deserved a badge, then I was doing all right. Welcome to Postcards from Midlife, Nisha. It's lovely to be here. Now, listen, we speak to so many women who have midlife career transitions or are in the middle of planning them, but yours really must be one of the most remarkable. Where did the idea for Mowgli come from? And was there a particular moment that you thought, right, that's it, I'm jacking in the security of being a barrister, having a high-flying career to gamble it all on a restaurant? (laughs) It was a total battle between heart and mind, really, because there was nothing around me that would beckon a woman who was in her 40s with, you know, a household to run, etc., and a career into hospitality, particularly. Because at the time that, you know, I started Mowgli, all you saw in the media was, you know, you saw Gordon Ramsay, you know, shouting a lot, and you saw these kind of testosterone sloshed places of brutality. That was what a kitchen was. And that was hospitality, you know, and I came from a background of um, domestic violence and, and child abuse, et cetera. And I remember, you know, those watching those kitchen programs and the mantras of those chefs who shout was the same as the mantras of the perpetrators of domestic violence, which was, I shout because I care. I shout because I'm a perfectionist. It's just because I want it right. And um, so the whole idea was reprehensible to me. But, and I do mean this, I was reluctant, but I was extremely passionate. I used to teach while I was a barrister, I used to teach Indian cooking because I, I realized that once our first generations died out, they would take recipes with them. So I was very passionate about keeping these recipes alive. I was very passionate about people eating Indian food in the way that Indians actually eat Indian food, the way that we eat at home once the curtains are drawn and the guests have gone home. It, it's extremely healthy. It's generally completely plant-based. It is super quick uh, and full of <laughs> the most incredible ingredients that are so good for you. And that was not represented on the high street. So I also felt, it's stupid, isn't it? But I felt as though I kind of had a duty, you know, once I've shuffled off my mortal call, I'm married to a European. Um, so my children are, are kind of half Hungarian. I thought, you know, the, the true tried and tested ways and formulas of Indian cooking will die sort of with us as a second generation. So I felt evangelical about it. So that's when I sort of ventured into thinking, okay, I'm going to have to do this and how do I do it? You do sound like you planned it very well because you're, you're very organised. You, you were a barrister. That's quite a lot of learning. And I guess given the success, I would look back and think, oh, she must have done really well at school. She's always destined for success. But actually that wasn't the case, was it? You, you failed your A-levels, didn't you, for example? Well, I'm twice. <laughs> so you've learned, you've overcome setbacks quite early on in your teens. So tell us what happened and how you learned to overcome setbacks and keep pushing through, really. I think a lot of this comes down to faith. So I have a very strong faith. And I just, there's, for every door, honestly, it's that, that point, isn't it? That for every door that closes, the right door will open. You've got to do your best. So, so I was a model student. So I was top of my class. And then I got my first boyfriend that was prohibited at the age of 17. So I was raised by two uh, Indian doctors. Um, we were Brahmins, we're kind of the top caste. And you're not allowed to have a boyfriend, you know, you study. And it comes from that insecurity that the, the typical immigrant sort of insecurity is that my parents believed unless you 
you work harder than everyone else and you do better than everyone else, you will fall off the face of Britain. And so a boyfriend was always going to get in the way of that. So Nisha, you need to study, was the point. You know, you need to study, you need to become a doctor. Then you can have all the boyfriends you want. It's a small thing, isn't it? But obviously at the age of 17, I went out with the baddest lad in the, in the class and, and that's when I went off the rails. So instead of going to school or to college for my A-levels, I would get in a car and me and him would disappear off to the Lake District or Preston. <laughs> honestly I tell you and so that's that's why I sort of you know saw my dreams of whatever academic success and medicine go out of the window you pulled it back though didn't you you pulled it back to go to university well I did pull it well did I pull it back yes well I didn't pull it back to where it was but what happened is this other door opened which was me going to university to study law which was relatively an indignity but I did. I went off to do law and then I went to Lincoln's Inn. And then at that point, my parents were happy because Gandhi went to Lincoln's Inn. So that was all right <laughs> and became a barrister. But I think the point was, you know, there was this epiphany that came to it because, because I failed my level so many times. I was, you know, working in a solicitor's office, uh, office in the summer and I went to deliver a brief to Chambers. That's what I had to do as one of my errands. I remember walking into this environment thinking, oh, my God, there is a job like this. This is extraordinary. And fell in love with it. And it gave me the motivation. You know, I, I got a little bit of that pink ribbon that used to tie briefs up. And then I got the motivation. So failure, it's a really tricky thing, isn't it? Because I actually don't really believe in the word failure. I just believe in sort of redirection. And I think once you are convicted of that, there is always hope uh, and hope is I think the most important thing in, in life is there is always hope so for my girls as well as they go through, they'll fail at things and they'll cock up and there'll be breakups and they'll pick the wrong boy whatever but it's just a redirection so you can get where you're going to be more useful most useful to other people and be happiest most content really I think that would be really reassuring for all our parents of A-level students listening right now who might be a bit worried you mentioned your parents. Let's go back to the 70s. And for you growing up in Skelmsdale outside Liverpool, your parents were both doctors. They'd immigrated, as you said, from India. Yet although they were serving their local community, they really experienced terrible racism, didn't they? I mean, how did that affect them and how did it affect you? They were, um, so they were doctors, that's right. And they worked in a, they came to an environment that was entirely, obviously English. There was, we were the only Indians in the village, really. My earliest memory was of being firebombed and the word Paki being written on a brick and then thrown through my nursery window and landing next to me. And for my parents, they were there to serve the community. And I, honestly, I do tell you, if, if you're an immigrant and if you're Indian, you, you, you're pretty thick skinned. It, it's what you've known from the beginning. So you speak to anyone my age, that is what we have been through. It is sink or swim. You're in this environment. You just want people to like you. And it is pitiful that's all you want and so you bend over backwards to be obsequious and to be friendly and to try not to look too Indian all of those things so that people would just like you that's all I want is I wanted friends you know um, and so, as did my parents and so we opened up our house so often just to feed people because that's the way Indians do it really <laughs> food is a big thing in those cultures of paucity and it did it won the neighbors around so people would come over and then the teenagers would come over and they'd eat in the house and They'd be introduced to these different flavors and the, the youngsters were the ones that were first, you know, keen to try it. Their parents would come over with their own ham sandwiches, you know, to avoid it. So that, that it was very, very hard. But I think what it does, first of all, it teaches you a resilience. But secondly, you go through life wanting to be like, you know, you go through life thinking 
there's not much arrogance left in you. You know, you are um, the corners that are entirely knocked off you. You don't. There's no presumption. Quite traumatic, though. I mean, it's it sits deep in the psyche to go through that and come out the other side. But it's not something that affects you now emotionally, or or is it? No, it doesn't affect me now emotionally because I'm quite practical about it. Because I think what it does, and I think what really helps is, and and this is you know what's so nice about being a slightly broken human i think we're all meant to be broken in you know it's that idea of the sort of japanese pottery where you're broken and then they fix the breaks with gold and because you're broken you're better and you're more useful to other humans i do think that the reason we exist on earth is to make the people around you feel better about themselves you know it's love basically and i think the more you've been through the more you can authentically love and be of use to people so what happened to me just means that it makes me understand people when they are having a rough time, when they are being persecuted, when they are broken, when they feel not good enough and hopeless and all of those things. And just because of fundamentally the way you are and the way you look, people issue you, you know, and avoid you. I totally understand how, how that feels. And so it's kind of it makes you more useful. So everything I do and everything I build is around how do you make the people around you feel better? Because they will be going through the same rubbish that I've been through. And how did that come into play when you became or were studying to become a barrister in the 90s? Because there can't have been many Asian female role models at that point in chambers. Yeah, there were none. So I think on the Northern Circuit, I was the first female Asian barrister. There were none. Never mind Asian. I'm talking about women. <laughs> I, you know, we must have been one of a handful of women amongst, you know, 500, 600 barristers. There'd probably be about mm, six, seven, eight of us. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful thing and it's a true meritocracy. I didn't come from any background of law and it was entirely down to how well you got on with people in chambers and how well you did in your exams or whatever it might be. It was a total, it was really, really reassuring and, and um, edifying that, that, that I was just taken in. You know, there was, there were no strings that I could pull. It was entirely on merit. And it gives you a lot of faith in the world, really, in that way. And that's been sort of my experience in a way, even with Mowgli, you know, building it with absolutely no business knowledge whatsoever and, and no finances, no strings that I could pull, just building it from scratch. It's a wonderful tale of endeavor that you look at, you know, it's a, I, this is why I do love this country. You know, it is a level playing field in that way. So I, yes, joined and I was one of the first women and now the majority of people that join the bar are female the majority of people that go into medicine are are female Uh, but back then you know it was a complete minority when I came across to the business world in 2014 we were back to where we were where again women were an absolute minority so I remember going to one of my first big functions with all the CEOs and MDs of, of big restaurants in London and I think I was one again of five women in the entire room and I was standing by the um the door with a glass of wine and somebody tried to take it off me thinking I was one of the servers, you know, um, which is fine. It's just, it's just different and it will change. And that's why it's so important. This is why it's so good to have you two as well, you know, out there just as women role modeling, <laughs> you know, for, for those girls coming up. Why did you pick family law? You must have seen all human life. Uh, anyone who works in family law sees all human life, really, don't they? You do see the worst and the best of people. Did you learn from that experience as a woman? Oh, goodness me. I mean, it, incredibly. So much of what I'm about is what I learned in family law. So much of, well, did I became a barrister at whatever, 21 or whatever it was, but you start, you know, being exposed to family law by then. The way that humans interact, the, the nature-nurture debate, in my view, having been a family barrister for 20 years, it is, there's no such thing as nature, it's all nurture. <laughs> Apart from diabetes, it's nurture. 
It's a Philip Larkin thing, isn't it? Every single thing about us. And it's not an indictment on our parents. It's just it is to do with parenting. And you're right. It is the cold face of what people are going through. You're meeting people at the lowest point of their life, you know, going through the unimaginable. And you are there as a barrister to give them hope. And, and every case will have a different requirement of what that hope looks like. Sometimes people cannot keep their children. And it's how do you give them hope when they have to give their children up? Sometimes, you know, women are having to send their children off to the most abusive partner for contact or whatever. And it's how do you give them hope in the face of that, that their child is going to be okay? It's all of that absolute emotional treachery. So, gosh, it keeps you completely sharp. Now, let's come on to talk about uh, the restaurants and, and your approach with Mowgli and, and setting it up, because you've mentioned that, you know, restaurants don't have the best reputation for work culture, as you said, all the shout. I mean, you just have to watch The Bear or Boiling Point and you kind of think, why would anybody want to work in a restaurant? But I guess starting it from scratch and with all of your life experience, you can make the rules around the culture, can't you? You can create the culture, you can change the culture. And we we love that you've instigated some great things like paternity leave for your dog. I think this is where it's kind of, when I, I started it on a maternal management model. I think what's great about coming in to a sphere where there are no role models is you, you make your own rules. I, I could never manage in the way that I saw other operators manage in, in hospitality. It's just not me. Also, I was older and I'm female and I've raised two children. I'm keeping a household together and I was a family law barrister. So all of those things mean it was always going to be completely different. It was always going to be slightly idealised as well. And you think this is all a bit pie in the sky. It's all a bit soft and touchy-feely. Surely this doesn't work in, in hospitality. But I knew no other way of doing it. And it's absolutely worked. It's, it's incredible. I developed Mowgli and, you know, and, and, and founded it. And I had one aim for Mowgli, and it was to enrich lives in the city she goes to. You can do that through food. But for me, the aim was I build a place where you would want your funnily enough, your children to go and work. I would want my own children to work there. It's a place where you, you know, everyone goes through all kinds at home. I want this to be a place of solace. So when they come to work, they feel three things, purposeful, nourished, and fulfilled. So that is what I built Mowgli for. The food was easy for me. I've written, you know, six cookbooks and I, that, that's what I do for a living. The food is just easy. And so I took those three concepts and I thought, how do I feed it? You know, how do I, how do I build it so they, they do feel you know, purposeful. It's easy. They need to know their career trajectory. So when they walk in, they can see that there's a tree and you can start as a kitchen porter in Mogi KP and you could be a head chef in 18 months with no English. So in Man my third restaurant, Manchester, that's a line, my second restaurant, Spanish Fernando came in with no English as a KP and 18 months later, Fernando has English and he's a head chef. This is purposeful. <laughs> you know where you're going. You know, and then nourished is all of those things like the paternity. If you get a, a dog, you know, we give you a week's flexible leave. You know, you, it's paternity leave. We give you your birthday off. You're paid well. You get Christmas day off. You get Boxing Day off. You get New Year's day off. All of those things that just, I'd want that for my own kids. We have family pizza evenings where everyone gets together. We send them off to sushi making classes. And then the fulfilled is every Mowgli has a charity that they support. So every Mowgli has either a hospice or a cancer charity. And I have a dedicated charitable champion in each restaurant. And our people come into work. And what I want them to think about when they come into work is how do we go about raising, how do they raise money for this charity? So they do sponsored walks or climbs or abseils. It brings them together. And so we've raised, we're approaching £2 million for local charities. But we send them abroad as well. So we're just building, as we speak, two, two schools in India for deprived girls. 
and I'm sending over 40 members of my team this year out to go and work in those schools for a week. You know, so they come back and they've got perspective and it's working. We've got a thousand employees. People don't leave. We have no problem recruiting. So it's very encouraging. Let's talk about food now and cooking and get some tips maybe or ideas from you because I love that in, I think, one of your books, it might be Meat Free Mowgli, you describe yourself as a culinary womble. <laughs> yes. <laughs> do you want to explain what that is? We love that. Well, you know, wom- do you remember the wombles are picking oh, up yes. things that other people throw away and they make the most of the things that other people throw away. And I think that comes from these immigrant cultures. You know, we don't just eat the breast of a chicken. If a bird has given its life, you use all the bits of it. You, know, you cook chicken on the bone all of those things. So it's that not being wasteful. It's the bits that are shabby and beginning to, you know, detritus in the back of your fridge, what you can do and you can cook a family of, you know, for a family of four with that. You take the outer leaves of a sad cabbage, you know, just extraordinary things that you can do with the bits that other people throw away. So it's not just about frugality. It's often those bits that are the most delicious, you know, what you can do in the Indian kitchen with leeks or a Savoy cabbage um, with potato and some mustard seeds. My gosh, so delicious, so utterly addictive. So it's that I think what we're used to almost in the West is taking these pristine, hermetically sealed, glossy bits of whatever, baby broccolette, and we're taking plants before they've fully grown just so that it's almost like eating emojis, isn't it? <laughs> just, it's just so wrong. We've got to, you know, now is the time. You know, we need that frugality. We need that husbandry in the kitchen. And you feel so resourceful when you can take something that's knackered and beginning to die and feed a family for, you know, it's not necessarily just always the purview of women. It's just I am the cook. I love to cook. But any cook coming to the kitchen, I think you feel at your cleverest when you've done that. I am a culinary nitwit, not a culinary womble. So if I go into my fridge, what can I go into the back of the fridge and think, oh, that's a bit dodgy. What's that? What would be your basic things? Just like on a really practical, specific tip for women. I'm going into the fridge today. I can't go out and get stuff because everything's shut and blah, blah, blah. What am I going to cook? What's great is cabbage in the fridge. So your Savoy cabbages or those Chinese leaves, they last forever. You know, a drumhead cabbage, they just seem to last for months and months, honestly. And I'm saying months. What am I going to do with it? You're going to have three jars in your kitchen cupboard that are going to take you all over the Indian subcontinent in 10 minutes. And one of them's going to have cumin seeds in, one's going to have mustard seeds in, and one's going to have turmeric in it. You slice your cabbage and into a pan, you put some oil and some mustard seeds and you wait for them to pop. A little bit of garlic is always lovely in that. You put in your shredded cabbage a touch of the turmeric, so that's just mustard seeds, a bit of garlic and turmeric, a little bit of brown sugar, heaven, and a bit of salt. And you're going to just simmer that or you're going to toss it together so it's soft. Absolutely delicious. You could also throw into that some potatoes that have been pre-boiled and suddenly you've got this much food from one cabbage that is divine. Tender stem broccoli lasts forever as well. And those cabbages, you've always got potatoes in your cupboard, so you're only ever sort of 15, 20 minutes away from feeding four people if they walk into your house. Obviously, this all began from your home kitchen, your mother, probably your grandmother. Love the fact that in one of your books, you've got a chapter called Ma, Look Away. <laughs> Do you want to tell us about your your mum's reaction to this incredible success you've had and the way that you cook and what you're doing with Mowgli? Do you know, I think there's a latent food entrepreneur in most of us, and particularly Indians. I think we're really proud of our food uh, and we are feeders. 
and we're very, very hospitable. So I didn't give up being a barrister to build Mowgli. I had to do both. I was paying the mortgage. I'm the, the breadwinner. So I had to keep working full time. So it wasn't as though I gave up the bar immediately to start Mowgli. I did both. So that made it quite palatable because you want to see your child. Uh, you don't want to see your child in jeopardy. You want to see your child secure. So she knew that I was retaining that security. And then there was this foray into, look, could I build this restaurant? So I have to say my mother was not just supportive, but quietly really excited. The dal in Mowgli is Ma's dal. You know, the cabbage tangle is Ma's cabbage tangle. The, the lamb curry is my dad's lamb curry. It keeps them alive in perpetuity. And, and food is it's not some ancillary thing to us. It's everything. You know, when you go and visit other Indians, you're, that Indian is known because of the way that they happen to cook their chicken curry or they happen to cook their pakoras. You know, what Mowgli was was a temple to their DNA. You know, my parents' DNA. My dad I lost before I even started Mowgli. But Ma was really proud of that. And my Auntie Gita, who's prawn curries on the menu, again, really proud of that because it's that humility that comes from the life that we had. So the life that we had when we were raised, people, you were ashamed of the way you smelt. You were ashamed of smelling of curry or, or, or that people knew you ate curry even. Even my girls in 2000, whatever, 10, when children used to come to the house, their school friends, my girls would beg me not to cook chicken curry for them because they're so embarrassed by it. And then to build Mowgli where we watch people come in and spend their hard-earned cash on curry. Me and Ma used to just sit there and we were utterly broken by humility just watching every single mouthful. And I still feel that. So she was proud. And I think anyone should look at your Instagram because you put up a lovely post of cooking with your grandmother didn't you at home in India, which is just so, so beautiful. But your new book, Bold, well, it really is bold, isn't it, Nisha? We've really got to get out of our comfort zones. Chicken and banana korma. So good. This is like a mind-blowing change your way of thinking around cooking, isn't it? In a way. And I think all of us do it a little bit. I think all of us, you know, we go through the fridge and we think, okay, I've got, you know, whatever, mince meat and I've got some dark chocolate I put those together so well actually not all of us do but I think some of the weirdest weirder ones amongst us do but certainly chefs do chefs are always looking for those interesting combinations and not in a contrived way bold is about the way that I actually cook so things like that banana korma I can't tell you how delicious it is and and I think this is the tenor for the whole book is please just trust me on this it's about taking simple recipes and putting one twist in that will change the way you cook it forever. So now, whenever I make a korma, it's very hard for me not to put banana because it's so delicious. All it's doing is adding that sweetness, that slightly more caramelized, fruity edge that makes perfect sense in curry because that's what we do. You know, these cornflake um, chicken burgers, for instance, you know, I didn't have cornflakes and I wanted to make them for the girls and we had crunchy nut, you know, the crunchy nut type of cornflakes in. And you make them with that instead. It's just that little bit of just turning a left, just where you were going to go, just fear left a little bit, and it will forever change the way you cook. And that is what this book is all about. It is magnificent. For you as well. I mean, so much of it is, is, is meat-free because the way that plant-based things work together, it, you know, is phenomenal. You know, cashew and, and mushrooms in a stroganoff, just heaven. You don't need meat in everything, garlic and, uh, and nettle. Filo pies. My mouth is watering talking about it, but this is what the book is around. <laughs> this is what the book is around. It's just trust me with this twist. Every time you turn a page, there's something so surprising. Like I, I mean, Irish soda bread with mackerel and seaweed. My goodness. Absolutely, because I remember being in, you know, in Northern Ireland a lot. My childhood was spent in Northern Ireland on holiday, 
and those tastes of the sea and that soda bread, you want that salt and you want that taste of the ocean in the bread. So yes, it, it sounds mad. I think it's just almost slightly trophy cooking, isn't it? Is that you cook this for your friends and it's a talking point as well, but it's utterly delicious. Now you are 51, hugely successful, MBE, all these things going on. You've got this massive business, two girls, marriage, everything. What was your midlife transition like? Because as you say, you started it all a bit later and the wisdom helped you mm. in that. But how did you go through your perimenopause culturally? Is this something that was talked about? So here's the thing. My mother was a doctor and I remember listening to a Radio 4 programme about the menopause. Do you remember it? It was a couple of years ago and they dedicated an entire week to it. And I remember a sort of half asleep listening to someone saying, the most important thing you can do as a woman is talk to your mother about the menopause because what she's been through is what you will go through. So you know what to expect. So I spoke to Ma about what were her symptoms. And she said two things. One, really very bad night sweats. Two, I hated your father. Like I cannot tell you. <laughs> no difference there. And she said, so she started, she said, she, you know, those are the overriding feelings. Angry, she, I was angry with everyone. And I hated your father and really very bad night sweats. And she said, I started HRT because there's all this, you know, this business about HRT, breast cancer, all of that. She said, I started HRT. And she said, and I remember vividly, and she said it repeatedly. She said, within three days, I was a new woman. She said, within three days, it totally changed my life. And she said, my only regret was that I did not stay on it into my late 70s. That was Ma. But what that did then was took away all of that anxiety about should I, should I not do it? Is, is this um, an indignity? Is it not? Is this giving in? So my, my perimenopause, I think, you know, I didn't wait to the point where I was hating my husband or all of that. I just remember getting a few hot sweats thinking, stuff this. It's beginning to interfere with my sleep and I have a business to run. I'm not having it. And then I started on these sprays and estrogen tablets. I'm going to go and see someone actually in a month to just try and change it a little bit. And it might entirely be placebo in my mother's words ringing in my ears. Within a week, sleep pattern fantastic, hot sweats gone. That and audiobooks. I can't tell you how good audiobooks are. Well, Trish is ploughing her way through Barbara Streisand, 48 <laughs> hours. Any good? It's really good, but I just keep thinking I've still got 42 hours to go. Yeah. It is good. It's really interesting. But listen, we are coming to the end of our chat, and I think we've got a few just final little questions that we wanted to ask you. First of all, for all of our budding midlife entrepreneurs, what is maybe one piece of advice you would have for them? The, the one thing I say, and this is, I think, really important, the world doesn't owe you a living. So it's not every idea that is going to sail. What's meant for you will not go past you. If it's not meant to be, it's not going to happen for the right reasons. The secret for me is to look for a gap in the market that you can uniquely, and I mean uniquely fill because of your knowledge or your passion or your skill. So just the fact that you can make half decent cupcakes, you don't open a cupcake shop, that's not going to work. You look for a gap that you can uniquely fill and then you give it a go. But what I would always say is keep the job that you have. Don't give up your security because once you give up that and you need it, once you need that project to work, then you're in real trouble. Then you make the wrong decisions. So keep the other job going, whatever, you know, if it's shelf stacking, whatever it is, just to give you that income, you've got to find the gap that you can uniquely fill and then give it all you've got. But until you know the next rope to swing to is going to hold your weight, don't give the one up that you were going to leave. This is like asking, pick your favourite child, isn't it? Pick your favourite recipe. 
Do you know what I really just love? And I think it's always a showstopper. A leg of lamb. I could do it with a cauliflower. Oh, I love a cauliflower. So what you do is in a, blend, in a blender, you put an onion, you put some garlic and ginger, and you put in a packet of ginger nut biscuits and you blitz them. She said ginger nut biscuits, Trish. She said ginger nut biscuits. What's wrong with her? I get very upset about a raisin in the main course. I can't tell you. It's a challenge for me. <laughs> Do you? Oh, no. Sorry. Okay, you want super savoury. Okay, just for the filthy amongst us then. Tablespoon of garam masala, blitz it up and you get this paste. And you cover your lamb leg in it or your cauliflower and roast it. It is to die for. It's so divine, so it's spicy, it's sweet, it's savoury. It's all of those things. You get this fantastic crust. And you cut through and that is delicious. Oh, well, thank you so much, Nisha, for your time today. We've learned so much and we are really enjoying making your recipes. And I think we're going to have to bucket list visiting every single one of your restaurants around the country, <laughs> do a nationwide tour. But thank you so much for joining us today. So lovely to speak to you. Thank you so much and all the best to both of you. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. So any culinary adventurers, we do have a copy of Nisha's new book, Bold, to give away. That will be over on the Facebook group. It's been so wonderful talking to her. But now it's time for How to Win at Midlife. In this section of the show, we always offer advice from experts on stuff that makes life easier for you. And batch cooking, in my humble opinion, does make life much easier for you. Lorraine, you're keen to try it. Uh, you had a little chat with your friend the chef Melissa Helmsley, didn't you, on how to get started. So we're going to be sharing some ideas uh, about what we've come across that may guide you. I did want to get started on it, Trish, because I have realised that obviously I should have got with the programme years ago when I had four children and a busy job, etc, etc. But I don't like to plan things and I particularly don't like to plan what I'm going to eat because I think it just takes thought. It took a bit of joy out of my life. But I have noticed now because I'm a vegetarian and they all eat meat and we have varying people coming in and out of the house all the time. And because we work from home now, most of us, there's just more need for meals and it's quicker and easier. And we travel about a lot, you and I as well, doing things as well. So as I'm eating a different meal from them, what I thought I would do is start practicing preparing it in advance, which I'm not alone in this. Lots of women come to it later uh, in life, but I do hate planning, um, but I have discovered that this actually works and it does actually save money as well, Trish, and it's just easier to do. I have learned a couple of things in my three weeks of batch cooking. Go on then. Before I talked to uh, Melissa, 
Uh, I did make a very complicated curry, veggie curry from a cookbook, and it wasn't very nice, but I'd made loads of it. Oh, no. The key is to test your recipes uh, in advance. Test before, yes. You do need to set aside a specific time. You can't randomly do it. So I do it during what I call uniform time on a Sunday, which is 4 to 6 p.m. When I used to be preparing a thousand uniforms, I'm now just doing one. You've got to have room in the freezer. Didn't take that into account the first time I did it. Couldn't get fit anything in. We sort of store stuff in those um, takeaway Tupperware containers because we've got quite a lot of them because my husband's a hoarder, as you know, so we've got a huge pile of them. But it's actually easier to put it in bags, you know. Yes, takes up way less room. But if you want to avoid freezer roulette, as we talked about last week, got to label you've got it. to label it. <laughs> you do have to label it. I was getting some out thinking, are they really big lentils or very small beans? I don't know what that is. <laughs> yeah. um, and also there is a sense of not getting... What Melissa said to me, food boredom. Don't yeah. make so much that you just dread yes. one of the three things you've frozen in your, in your basket. Keep changing the rotor. You know that I am a planner and an organiser. Obviously, things are slightly different for us because the kids, my kids are at university now. And also, they like to cook their own stuff even when they come home. Obviously, we'll do family meals on Saturdays and Sundays. But my new sort of routine is that I'll cook something really lovely on a Saturday night and a Sunday night and then have that on Monday and Tuesday as well. (laughs) So that's four nights done. So the Saturday night will go Monday evening and Sunday night will go on Tuesday evening. Wednesday, Thursday might be a freezer moment, something out of the freezer. And then Friday is treat nights. It might be like lovely fresh fish and homemade chips, something like that. But I do always have Hugh Fernley Whittingstall's uh, slow-cooked spag bowl from his meat book. I have tons of that in the freezer because that always goes down well if one of the kids comes in with a bunch of friends or something. And my sort of equivalent, my veggie equivalent of that is, we might have mentioned this one before, is Yotam Ottolenghi's mushroom and lentil ragu, which is absolutely delicious. And you can have that with pasta or mashed potato or rice or just lots of green veggies. Um, And then, you know what you were saying about the whole lunch thing? I think that's quite interesting as well. So I make up a big load of salad at the beginning of the week. So I'll make um, a coleslaw with a lovely tangy dressing or winter Waldorf salad or a lentil salad. So I've always got stuff that I can add to soups or jacket potatoes or whatever to try and make lunch. Because you're right, it's only when you're home working, isn't it, that you suddenly have to be cooking at lunchtime or putting something together so um so those are some of my little tips but I've got a feeling when you talk to Melissa she's got a lot more better ones than that she's just the queen of making food really quickly and really tasty she's got a substack newsletter which has tons and tons of this on called things that make my heart sing and we love Melissa Hemsley's recipes and her books so she once biked around a cookbook while she'd seen some disaster I'd put on Instagram. But oh. I think that's one of those things where I'd forgotten to put the apples in an apple crumble or something like that. And she texted me and said, I'm sending you a book now because you're going to starve to death if you don't sort this out. I sent her five questions. Where do you start? Because I'm a beginner. What are the basics you need in your food cupboard? And she said, well, you can sort of triple up recipes if you wanted to. If you've got a really big family at home, you just triple the ingredients. It works out more or less, but you don't have to do that. You probably do need to write down, and I've been doing this, three recipes you can do with basic things. So if you have spiced potatoes and chickpeas, what three ways could you do that if you've frozen that? So with slaw and flatbread or with eggs, that kind of thing. 
Tin tomatoes is an absolute must for the for everything in the cupboard, but beans and lentils as well. She uses uncooked red lentils, she said, because they're really affordable. Take 18 minutes, you can put them in bolognese, veggie chilies, very creamy and hearty. I hadn't really thought about that. Cook up a dal as well. Always have various dals on the go. Well, I thought lentils took a thousand years to cook, but I didn't realise they were only 18 minutes. Keep a little um, jar like you do of nuts and seeds yes. to sprinkle. And I liked her little note. She said, keep your favourite flavour boosters. So if you've defrosted something, you can boost the flavour with olives, capers, harissa paste, miso paste, tamari and apple cider vinegar. All those little things. Yes. And then I said, are there basic recipes? You know, she said, well, there are. Tomato sauce is a great one. Um, she's got a book called Eat Green with a great hidden veg pasta sauce that you can freeze. Uh, pesto is obviously a good one, but you can use any cheese for pesto. So don't abandon making pesto just because you haven't got parmesan. She said that's really good to freeze. And then she has a kind of curry base and soups as well, which she freezes. One of the tips she did give is that when she makes these wet things for soups and stews that, that last a while that you can freeze, really reduce the sauce down as much as you can so that when you freeze it, you're simply you're not freezing as big an amount of liquid as you normally would. <laughs> so you want to be freezing it with less liquid and then you can add the liquid to bring it back afterwards when it's defrosted. Oh, I like that because quite often I find that the freezer bag leaks a bit <laughs> it's defrosting yeah. so you have to put it in a dish because otherwise you get all mess all over the counter. Yeah, she's saying just reduce it as much yeah, as you can. So you sense. could do a big bean chilli, which is ideal for freezing, reduce it right down and then get it out, defrost it, add, add your water, bring it back to life. Then you can add your guacamole and your grated cheese and tortilla chips. She avoids freezing leafy greens and anything with a high water content. Yes. No courgettes, she says, and don't freeze eggs, obviously. Or potatoes, I think. They don't go down very well. She's saying that's okay, actually. Oh, really? Yeah, if they're in a, like a curry or something like that and they've been cooked through. Yes, yes. And just on the lentils, I because I'm really trying to up my protein because obviously us being veggies, it is a bit tricky because we're doing the old strength training. Well, Mosley told us to, didn't he? he? Did. So get up that protein. Exactly. And I'm, because I'm trying to do a little bit more, well, quite a lot more strength stuff, building my little muscles. I just try and throw some protein into everything. So like my soup at lunchtime, I'll just throw in some lentils from a can. That's always good. Or sort of chickpeas into a salad. So I, that We got that from Dr. Rupi in his cookbook. Um, and when he came on the show, didn't he? He said, just throw in some pulses, whatever you're doing, throw them in and that will help get your protein up. Can we talk about breakfasts? We can. Yeah, throw your overnight oats in here, Trish. I know you're going to bring them up, aren't you? No, yes, not. Melissa Hemsley was saying, you know, the overnight oats is... Um, she loves baking with oats. Get a load of oats. Yes, they're so good for you, oats. They're really, really good for you. But no, I was going to talk about my fruit compote batch cocking with the fruit compote. Do you think we should do a cookery book? Batch cocking with Trish and Lorraine. <laughs> yes, love that idea. Go on, tell us about the compote. Plum and vanilla. So I don't put sugar in any of these. There's no sugar. So because obviously we're trying to avoid our glucose spikes at breakfast. So that I would have this with like some Greek yogurt and some of my homemade granola from the Guardian recipe. Again, very low, if any sugar at all in that. Plum and vanilla. Delicious. That's what I had this morning. Rhubarb and ginger, but stem ginger. Chopped up a little bit of the syrup. Quite sharp, but really nice stirred into the yogurt. And then one called Ayurvedic apple, which is apples done in sort of cinnamon and cardamom and cloves and it's delicious just have a big load of that in the fridge 
And it's really yummy for breakfasts throughout the week. I like that. And I didn't know this, but I know it now, obviously. You can freeze um, cookie dough, freeze balls of it, and then you can bake it straight from frozen. So I will be making some cookie dough on Sundays because the kids absolutely like that. And she was saying that you can stretch your meals out. So if you have frozen and defrosted them, you can add back in pulses and beans and things like that so that they last longer. So you can freeze a base meal mm. and then add in extra stuff if you want to feed uh, more people or serve them on the side. Um, so she says with her bolognese, she puts in a tin or two of lentils and then they cook into the mint sauce gets vegetables into your teenagers and it, it bulks it out a little bit. So the other thing she mentioned, which I think is a great idea, is so simple, is, is jacket potatoes um, for teenagers, hungry teenagers. I hadn't really thought about this. If you just do a tray of them, then they're there and then you've got all this stuff you might have frozen with the beans and the yes. lentils and you can put in them. So yeah. you could do for dinner when they descend upon you in a hoard, defrost some of your bolognese and then just do a load yeah. of jacket potatoes. It's about saving that time all the time isn't it because you know it's just so stressful cooking because I don't enjoy it at all Trish but I like it now I'm planning it well you see I do I just love food I really enjoy the process of cooking and making nice kind of tasty but healthy food but I think it is really because I do have the time to do it now and of course when we were working in magazines and having small children it wasn't that easy but now it's kind of I feel like that's another really nice thing about this life stage is having the time to kind of think about the uh, meals and using up ingredients I love that because you can find recipes everywhere now which obviously you couldn't have done 20 years ago but um I think for anyone who is struggling with knowing what to make and just wants recipes wants a meal plan the Tesco meal planning app is really good it has like it'll give you a weekly here's what to cook here are all the ingredients and um, some yummy things on there like spaghetti with sprouting broccoli olive and tomato sauce that's right up my street and they're very simple they give you the time it takes so if you if you're that kind of person you need to really kind of plan ahead and, and think about it then do have a look at the old tesco meal planning app and there's a couple of other things I should mention. So there's uh, Melissa Substack, Things That Make My Heart Sing. Taming Twins uh, on Instagram. If you look up Taming Twins on Instagram, is a mum who's done, she's done a book, but she does really great big recipes. If you've got younger children that work really well. Um, her book is Fuss-Free Family Food. There is somebody called The Batch Lady, Suzanne Mulholland. I found her on Instagram. She's got a couple of books and she's on telly every now and again. So I'm sure that would be helpful. And I like something called um, Mob Kitchen, which is for student batch cooking, um, which is on Instagram, but they're mostly uh, on YouTube as well. And obviously, BBC Good Food is quite good, isn't it, Trish, for basic boil and egg recipes? Oh, I love it. I think it's brilliant. Just pop what you've got left in the fridge and it'll come up with 25 recipes. It's fabulous. It's really good. Lurking at the back of the salad drawer, vegetable drawer. I think I'm quite hungry now. I'm off to write my new cookbook. Ba, ba, ba. Nostalgia noodle. Noodly doodle. Could you do it as a sea shanty because you're in Cornwall? A little nostalgia noodle sea shanty? I've written to Beyonce and I've asked her. <laughs> to do it as part of her act to a new album, new album her drop. country album could you do a nostalgia noodle for us alongside your unusual country album beyonce yes exactly quite different right <laughs> i've kept on the food theme well drinks really because obviously nostalgia noodle is now turning into nostalgia noodle and why didn't i know that this was actually inspired by a little 
article, useful article you'd written for our Substack postcards from Lorraine and Trish, our lovely newsletter that everybody can subscribe to, uh, about electrolytes. Because I didn't really know a lot about electrolytes and how useful they are, all the kind of amazing minerals and things that you get from them. Made me think about, well, here's how the journey went. I was thinking, gosh, what we have available now, what athletes have available. Made me think about barley water back in the 70s and 80s. Barley water back at Wimbledon, lemon and orange barley water. Didn't know that barley water is made from barley. I just looked it up. Did you know it was made from barley? No, I didn't, but I'm not sure how it enriches my life to know such things, Trish. (laughs) Oh, that's the whole point of noodle, isn't it? The point of the pointless, I suppose. It's like, why why was it a thing? But yes, it does seem odd that those poor athletes, all they had was a bit of barley water uh, when they were sort of thrashing about on a tennis court. But apparently you, you can make it. There's quite a lot of websites that have recipes make it for it. Make it yourself, because apparently barley's good for the gut, does all the lovely things that we know about, you know, um, metabolising blood sugar, all of those sorts of things. And I think you'd basically boil up some barley and strain it off and shove a bit of lemon and a bit of honey or something in it. Uh, obviously, you have to make sure it's not full of sugar. But it was um, apparently became a Wimbledon thing because a steward used to make it and drink it there in the 1930s. I mean, I can see you're absolutely riveted. Oh, the things you tell me you today. You yes. <laughs> Have that in your freezer, mislabel it. I'm, I'm still recovering from Professor Tim Spector telling oh, yes. us and everyone on the internet that you mustn't drink orange juice in the morning for very valid reasons that he actually said it's better to drink Diet Coke than it is to drink orange juice these days. No. Oh, my God. Really? Because there's so much sugar in anything you buy. I used to think that my children, it was okay because they never drank that many fizzy drinks, but that, you know, I'll get some fruit down there with some orange juice, but I was rotting their insides and their teeth. Oh, God. It's so difficult sometimes, isn't it? <laughs> Trying to get it right. Too much information. TMI, Professor Tim. Wow. That was a wonderful feast of feasting today. Trish, I feel like I'm further down my culinary road to being a normally domesticated woman who can do things that other women can do in the kitchen. So, Thank you, everybody, for that. Thank you, Nisha. We'll bring all this knowledge to you at our retreat, won't we? There'll be lots of chat of batch cooking and all sorts of things there. But thanks for listening today. Bye. Bye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.